Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production, where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange, Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Hello, my fellow Mysterians. It's good to be back. This week, I want to talk to you a little about something uh, first before we get into the actual show. And it has to do with my injury. And I know I posted this on my Facebook page for the Mysterious Moments, but I'm going to say it because there may be some who don't read the page for Mysterious Moments. One of the things I want to talk about was the timing of my injury. In 1977, I had an accident with a rifle and shot myself in the knee. That was on August 7th. It was a Sunday afternoon. This time when I got injured, it was on a Wednesday morning just after midnight, but it was August 7th. Okay, matches up. I got out of the hospital in 1977 on August 16th. It was a Tuesday afternoon. This time, I went back to have my stitches out on August 16th. When I got home in 1977, I laid down to rest due to the fact that I had band practice later that evening. School would be starting in a couple of days. I had a cast on my leg, so it was difficult to get around in some cases. But as I was laying there listening to the radio, the announcer broke in and said, This just in from Memphis. And I knew immediately before he said another word that Elvis Presley had died. I don't know how. This time, when I got my stitches out, my wife was at work. She came home. I said, Honey, it was 1977 on this date when I got out of the hospital. And Elvis died. I wonder who famous is going to die this time. And about 9 o'clock that night, she called me from her computer and said, Honey, Peter Fonda died today. So, 1977, I get injured and I get out of the hospital and Elvis Presley dies. 2019, I get injured. I go back and get my stitches out. So, technically, I got released from care and Peter Fonda dies. I didn't know it at the time, and it was a couple of years after all this had taken place in 77, that I saw my surgeon in a store, and he said, do you realize that you nearly died on the operating table? And I said, no, I didn't know that, but thanks for telling me, because that explains some things. So my question has been, ever since, did my brush with death on the operating table cause me to know that Elvis had died or was it just like a chance of 
possibility that that's what they were going to break in and say. I don't know. I, I just find it interesting that the dates correlate and the fact that I injured my left leg on both occasions. Uh, 77, it was my knee. 2019, it was my big toe. Anyway, I'm, I'm better from that. We're okay. Uh, things are getting back to normal. I just wanted to add that in. Like I said, I don't have any answers for any of it. The stories I want to talk about this week are mysterious disappearances in national parks or forests, areas like that. I have one story that's not from the United States, so bear with me. It's still an interesting story. Oh, if you hear a sound in the background that's kind of like white noise, that's my fan blowing because it's hot here in South Texas. In 1946, Catherine Van Alst, an eight-year-old girl, who was with her family at Devil's Den State Park near Arkansas's Ozark National Forest, disappeared from their camp and went missing. A search was instituted. They looked high and low for the girl. And six days later, she was found 30 miles away from where she got lost, and she was 600 feet higher in elevation than where she disappeared from. So what happened to this little girl? Did she just wander away? Was she abducted only to be released by a remorseful kidnapper? Did something otherworldly happen to her? The thing that perplexed and confused the search party was Catherine's remarkable calmness when they found her. Now, I can imagine they're out searching and they call her name, Catherine, Catherine, and there's a cave. So they call up into the cave from a distance, Catherine, are you in there? And she walked out of the cave as peacefully as if they knew she was there and she knew that they knew she was there. She walked out and said, Here I am. How does an eight-year-old girl wearing only a bathing suit travel such a distance, show no signs of harm, and is that calm? She was gone for six days away from her family at the age of eight. There are those that suggest that something chased Catherine. Okay, I could believe that. She was being chased, that's why she strayed so far from the camp. But for 30 miles? I'm thinking, if I can't outrun the thing in, in about 100 feet, it can have me. Now, it can't be denied that it was a mysterious happening and that something sinister could possibly be lurking in Devil's Den Park. In the United States National Park System alone, there are more than 84 million acres of preserved woods, deserts, mountains, and other wilderness. So it's no surprise that in the past hundred years or so, there have been numerous cases of hikers going missing. It's true and very sad when many of those who vanish are young children. It is sad when they're also inexperienced hikers because they have obviously bitten off more than they can chew. But for seasoned, older, healthy, knowledgeable about what they're doing, people go missing in some places where they're very familiar with and, and others obviously they're not, but especially where they're very familiar with it, where they're a local landmark, if you will, that they are seen in the forests a lot. There's got to be more to these disappearances than just people wandering off or getting disoriented. 
an eight-year-old girl moving 30 miles and 600 feet up in elevation? That's really weird. What would cause someone to seemingly vanish into thin air? There are people who intentionally disappear. And I don't mean poof, they're gone. I mean, they go into a, a wilderness of some sort and they don't come back out. Now, they don't come back out the way they went in or they don't come back out where they said they would come out, but they had a reason to not be found again. There are cases where people walked into the desert on a hike and realized this was their chance to make good on an escape, get out from under bills, get out from under maybe legal proceedings, uh, divorces, loss of a job, whatever, and then start a new life once they come back out. There are two approaches that some people take to explaining these disappearances. They're either earthly or supernatural. Well, that's a given. Uh, it's either going to be an earthly reason or supernatural in the sense that we can't explain it. Most hiking experts would say that these missing hikers have made common mistakes like attempting to do something that they really weren't ready for. They also, after making a mistake like taking on more than they can handle, they may fail to time their turn back. How far into the forest can you walk? Halfway. Because if you continue on, you're walking out of the forest. Well, what's that halfway point? What's that cutoff? Do they go for a walk in the forest and say, I'll be back in two hours and then lose track of time? Yeah, it could happen. And it could get dark on them real quick because if you go into a thick enough forest, it's going to be dark anyway. Or, or darker, not dark, but darker. These disappearances sometimes turn into urban legends and they are fodder for online message boards and nonfiction books. Somebody makes a big deal out of somebody missing. To be honest, and although it might be fun to imagine monsters or ghosts or evil spirits or even aliens, no proof for any supernatural disappearance has ever been provided. The facts are spooky enough. But there have been some unexplained disappearances both in the United States, in formal, federal, government-run national parks, as well as in related spaces like national forests, recreation areas, state parks, and more. Some of these park areas are not much different from resort areas. They're very built up, they have lots to do, there are residences, stores, hotels, attractions, etc., while others are as rustic as simply walking out in the forest and laying down a, a tent. There's nothing there. You make your own fire pit, you make your own fire, you gather your own firewood, that kind of thing. Here are a few of the most fascinating disappearances. Start off with Bessie and Glenn Hyde from 1928. Bessie and Glenn were honeymooning in northern Arizona at the Grand Canyon when they vanished. Now they weren't just at the Grand Canyon and poof they're gone. They were traveling down the Colorado River by scow, that's a flat bottom boat, in October of 1928 and they planned to boat through the Grand Canyon. Now had they have done that, Bessie would have been the first woman to do so successfully. Glenn had run tough rivers before, but Bessie was a boating newbie. The couple ran across other boaters a few weeks before their disappearance. A few weeks? My question is, how long does it take to float down the Colorado? Anyway, they found these other, they 
saw these other boaters a few weeks before their disappearance, who said they got the feeling that Bessie wanted to turn back, but Glenn kept pushing her on. If they completed the trip successfully, they could go on a paid lecture tour. So this trip was more than just fun. There was money at stake. And then there was silence. A search was launched by Glenn's father, Rollin, even before the couple were considered to be overdue at Needles, California, on December 6, 1928. On December 19th, a search plane spotted their scow adrift around River Mile 237. It was upright and fully intact and with the supplies still strapped in. A camera recovered from the boat by Emery and Ellsworth Kolb revealed the final photo to have been taken near River Mile 165, probably on or about November 27th. The search uncovered evidence to indicate the couple made it as far as River Mile 226, Diamond Creek, where it is believed they made camp. Bessie noted in her journal that they had just cleared Mile 231, Mile Rapid. Historian Otis Marston made a compelling case that the couple were most likely swept out of the boat when their scow hit submerged rocks in the heavy rapids near River Mile 232. In describing the rapid, Marston noted, pieces of granite wall lie submerged where they have damaged, snared, or capsized more boats than any other location in the canyon. Cut to several months later, the Hyde's boat was discovered that winter, seemingly undisturbed. It was upright, full of supplies, but the couple was gone. There were many theories about what happened to the Hydes. Did they disembark and try a too difficult side hike? Did they have an argument that turned violent? Or were they abducted? There were conflicting reports about what happened to the Hydes and more than one Bessie Hyde sighting in the years that followed. The romance of the story, a honeymooning couple going down the river together, coupled with the lack of any conclusive evidence as to the fate of the Hydes has led to a number of legends and rumors. An elderly woman on a commercial Grand Canyon rafting trip in 1971 announced to the other rafters that she was Bessie Hyde and that she had stabbed her abusive husband to death and escaped the canyon on her own. The woman later recanted this story. There was some speculation after the death of famed rafter Georgie Clark in May of 1992 that she was Bessie Hyde in reality. That was due to some documents and a pistol found in her effects after her death, but no conclusive evidence for such a link was ever found, not to mention that Clark's early life is well documented. Alfred Beelharts, 1938. Five-year-old Alfred Beelharts is the first recorded drowning in Colorado's Rocky Mountain National Park, though whether Beelharts actually drowned is controversial. He was camping in the park with his family over the July 4th weekend there in 1938 when he disappeared near the Roaring and Fall Rivers. Bill Hartz had gone with his dad to bathe in the river and from there he decided to join two family friends at a spot about 500 feet upstream of where he and his father entered the river. When everyone returned to camp, they realized that Bill Hart was missing. A search began immediately, expanding to more than 100 Civilian Conservation Corps members within 45 minutes. But there was barely any sign of the little boy anywhere. A day after he disappeared, a couple 
reported that they had seen a boy who looked like Alfred sitting in an area called the Devil's Nest. Authorities found this story improbable due to the difficulty of reaching the point where the boy was seen up the side of the mountain. They said it would take them at least two or three days to climb up there with proper gear. So what's a little boy doing up there just some time after he disappeared? By the time the authorities arrived, the boy was gone. The search went on for 10 days and included 150 men plus bloodhounds. Although the size of the search party had dwindled to a dozen by the end of the eighth day, Several leads failed to produce results, including a reported sighting of the boy walking with an adult male on a road in Nebraska, and a supposed ransom note saying something to the effect that he don't take to us, and that failed to gather any momentum after a couple of suspects were interviewed but released. What happened to this little boy? He just faded away. He was probably kidnapped because one of the stories was when this, these hikers saw the little boy up on that, that uh, mountainside he walked to the edge and looked out over the, the area and all of a sudden it looked like he was yanked back away from the edge so there's there's just no further information and, and you know the parents suspected that the boy had been kidnapped but I don't think there was ever a reason given why he would have been because when they got that that supposed ransom note they only asked for like $200 well, here's a story that I had covered in part due to another story, and that is the disappearance of Paula Weldon in 1946. And here's the backstory: There's an area in Green Mountain National Forest near Glastonbury Mountain and Vermont's Long Trail that believers in the paranormal call the Bennington Triangle. The area got this name because of a handful of mysterious disappearances which occurred between 1945 and 1950. Paranormal author Joseph Citro coined the term because of the supposedly supernatural circumstances surrounding these vanishings. Paula Weldon was the second person to go missing in that area of Green Mountain National Forest during this period. 18-year-old Paula Weldon was a college student who set out on the long trail in December of 1946. December in Vermont tells me that this was probably pretty cold. She was dressed for walking and not for a long hike. She was wearing jeans, a coat, and sneakers. Her attire implied that she had planned to return before dark when temperatures were supposed to dip below freezing. Weldon told her roommate that she was, quote, taking a long walk, unquote, and she never returned. Several people spotted her as she hitchhiked her way to the trail and walked to the trailhead. When Weldon didn't come back by dark, her roommate let the school know, and the search began. Classes were suspended so students could help with the search. The process was disorganized at first until Weldon's father called in favors from police in two surrounding states. Unfortunately, the search didn't pan out and frustrated family and friends had their own theories about what happened to her. Did Weldon run off with a boyfriend? Was she abducted? Did she commit suicide? Or did she die of exposure because of her inappropriate dress? No one has discovered her body. 
so her disappearance remains a mystery. There's a rumor that this area of the Long Trail is home to a creature called the Bennington Monster. Could this Sasquatch-like animal have something to do with the disappearance? Regardless of whether people think these disappearances are natural or supernatural in nature, the cases do have a few things in common. The missing tended to be alone when they disappeared, or they separated from their group by at least 50 yards. Bad weather and chaotic, disorganized searches were also a running theme in these cases. You can believe that these were accidents or something more sinister like abductions, but in these stories, there are lessons about how to stay safe when you're out in the woods. Dennis Martin, 1969 Dennis was on a camping trip near the Tennessee-North Carolina state line with his family in the summer of 69. It was an annual Father's Day tradition. All of the men in the Martin family headed to Smoky Mountain National Park to camp and hike. Dennis and his brothers had planned to prank the adults. They were each going to jump out on different sides of the campsite to scare them. It's a typical and usually safe prank, and it should have ended with some startled shouts and maybe a lot of laughter. The laughter ended quickly, though, when they realized that Dennis did not jump out. Family, park rangers, and other hikers spread out to search for Dennis almost immediately, but he was nowhere to be found. That evening, there was very heavy rainfall, which is bad news when you're conducting a search trying to track a missing little boy. The search for Martin became the largest in National Park Service history. One of the people searching was park ranger Dwight McCarter, who had successfully tracked down hundreds of missing persons, including young children. McCarter was a seasoned tracker, and he was struck by the complete lack of any sort of tracks. Dennis seemed to have disappeared completely, leaving no trace at all. His disappearance is still a mystery. One possible lead that searchers did not follow up on was a report from another family the evening that the boy went missing. The Key family allegedly heard a scream, then saw a bear man, B-E-A-R dash man, with something slung over its shoulder that looked like it could be a small child. We'll never know whether this was related to Martin's disappearance or not. Douglas Legg in 1971. Douglas and some of his family were heading out for a hike in the Adirondack Forest Preserve's Santanoni Preserve when his uncle spotted poison ivy and told Legg to go back and put on long pants to protect himself. The family's cabin was a short, straight shot from where they were, but Douglas never returned. Unlike a lot of kids who go missing in these national parks, Leg was very familiar with these woods. His family owned the cabin where they were staying and described Leg as a mini woodsman because they all hiked there together so often. Leg's disappearance sparked one of the southern Adirondacks' largest search and rescue missions with more than 600 people searching the woods, but Leg had left no trail. In the leg case, rescuers used dogs in their search. Some accounts describe dogs following leg scents for over a 30-mile trail through difficult terrain. How could a young child have traveled alone for such a distance? 
Some researchers reported seeing bear-like tracks near the site. While black bears do drag their prey to cover, dragging someone 30 miles over difficult terrain seems a bit unusual. But the police were certain that the mini woodsman had simply gotten lost. He was never found. John Devine, 1997. According to Peninsula Daily News, Olympic National Forest in northern Washington state has a feature that's not as majestic as its mountain views. At least four hikers have mysteriously disappeared from the area in the past 25 years, one of whom was 73-year-old John Devine. In 1997, John Devine planned to hike into the park from Mount Baldy. The trail is a tough 24 miles, and though Devine was elderly, he was also an experienced, long-distance hiker. He was camping with his friend Greg Balzer. They split up on the day that Devine went missing. Balzer went off to hunt, while Devine took off on a day hike. Devine never returned. The fruitless search for Devine lasted a full week until a rescue helicopter crash killed three people and injured five others. By that time, weather conditions had deteriorated, making the chances of finding Devine very slim. Friends and family said that Devine wouldn't want to put people in danger on his behalf, and the search was called off. The search helicopter's crash is as mysterious as Devine's disappearance. Before takeoff, the pilot used a hand signal indicating he was going to wait five minutes for conditions to improve before attempting takeoff. A moment later, the helicopter departed vertically without warning and crashed into the side of a mountain. David Gonzalez in 2004, at 8 a.m. on a July day, pay attention to that time, 8 a.m. M. David Gonzalez asked his mother if he could have the car keys. There was a box of cookies at 8 a.m. in the car and he wanted a treat. The car was only 50 yards away and his mother watched him as he walked to the parking lot near their Big Bear Lake campsite in Southern California's San Bernardino National Forest. As luck would have it, she turned her back for a second and when she looked around again, David was gone. His mother reported that she heard no sound at all when her back was turned. In my way of thinking, if she got distracted to look away, she also had her hearing attuned to what was distracting her. Though she did see a beige truck speeding out of the campground around the time her son went missing. Since there were no signs of abduction, authorities did not pursue that lead. The cookies that Gonzalez went to get were still in his family's locked van so he never made it to the car. Rescue teams in San Bernardino County scoured the woods for Gonzalez. They found no signs of struggle or of the boy. The search went on for nine days, but rescuers never found the boy. Almost a year later, hikers stumbled upon the boy's remains about a mile from his family's campsite. Authorities chalked this up to a mountain lion attack. But how could a mountain lion have silently dragged a nine-year-old boy a mile without leaving any blood or signs of a struggle? Yeah, to me, if a mountain lion came out of somewhere, they could hear me on Pluto. This next story isn't an American story as, as having occurred in the United States proper, but it is interesting. 
and it is in keeping with the mysterious disappearance thing. Pradeep Shron in 2013. Pradeep Shron was a 25-year-old Canadian Army reservist who disappeared from Australia's Kosciuszko National Park located in the southeastern state of New South Wales. Shron was studying abroad in Australia in May of 2013 when he decided to take a 1,700-mile road trip from the Gold Coast of Australia down to Melbourne. Shron rented the van, drove to the park's Charlotte Pass in the Snowy Mountains, and promptly disappeared. The search for Shron began when the rental company discovered that the van he had rented hadn't been returned. Shron hadn't told anyone what route or side hikes he was planning, and the search may have started days or even a week after he went missing, since it was the rental company that first reported the disappearance. Searchers figured out his hike plans by looking at the search history on a laptop they recovered from the van. Shron's family hired private researchers after the Australian authorities called off their search after only two weeks. The investigators used tower data from Shron's phone and a trained dog to track his trail to a treacherous area called the Western Fall Wilderness. Just one day before his van was due back at the rental agency, Shron had taken off on a difficult and time-consuming hike in snowy weather. Why would a trained military reservist make a choice like that? Despite a private search that went on for over a year, Shron's body has never been recovered. Now these stories may serve us well as cautionary tales. Don't go off on your own when in unfamiliar or even familiar territory. The earth has many surprises for us humans that no matter how familiar we are with an area, something's out there that might get you, be it animal, vegetable, or mineral. I have no answers regarding these strange occurrences for that would be limiting God and the universe. Well, that's the show for this week. I want to thank you for being along for the ride and listen again next week for another episode of Terry's Mysterious Moments.